This episode of The Mason Jar is brought to you by our friends at The Homegrown Preschooler, where they understand that the pressure starts so early. Aunt Claire just sent you another article about the importance of getting your child into school at age 3.765, while the Joneses next door are wondering why your two-year-old can't read yet and suggest you should get that Phonics iPad app to help him along, and you better get him into that exclusive preschool waiting list within the first week of his life on Earth. Slow down. Breathe. Be present. Have fun. Get messy. Let them be kids. Let them be free. You've got this. That's what Homegrown Preschooler says. Their program, A Year of Playing Skillfully, is a wonder-based, developmental, school year curriculum designed for children ages 3 through 7. Concrete themes and character traits have been carefully chosen for children to explore. Research-based learning opportunities address the needs of the developing brain in the following areas. Language and literacy, math and manipulatives, science and sensory, art and music, gross motor and outdoor play, and social, emotional, and home life. Currently, Homegrown's A Year of Playing Skillfully is $20 off, and all December they're including the ebook for free, as well as throwing in a free sensory kit and free packets of water beads. So give your child the gift of wonder this year. Head over to thehomegrownpreschooler.com to order today. Again, that's thehomegrownpreschooler.com to order today. today with Karen Glass and in the Charlotte Mason world Karen is um, just very well known she's she and deservedly so she um, is a part of the board at Ambleside online and she's written several books about um, how to use Charlotte Mason ideas in your home uh, today we are going to be talking about her newest book that's going to be released I think in January uh, with the title of Know and Tell, and we'll talk about that title in a second. Um, but also, Karen is going to be speaking at the Searcy um, Institute Summer um, Conference, on, and, and it's called uh, it's co- the conference is called A Contemplation of Reason. And when David announced the title, I thought, well, I am the last person who should be speaking at the conference on reason, but I know a perfect person to speak, um, a, a very reasonable person and someone who thinks so well. And Karen is that person. So she'll be speaking this summer in the United States. And we're all super excited about that. But today we have Karen on to talk about um, the our most requested subject of all, and that is narration. All right, so Karen, you have titled your new book about narration, Know and Tell. Can you tell us a little bit, um, as as someone who has had to come up with the titles of books before, I find that very stressful, but your titles are always perfect. Um, How did you come up with that? Oh, well, usually I come up with um, pretty mundane titles, and then my grown daughters complain about them. (laughs) (laughs) In particular, the one with is a, a graphic design and, and advertising major, and she just tells me that, no, you need a short, snappy title. And so I go reading Charlotte Mason and hope that one will emerge. But in this case, I ran my boring titles by her, and she's like, no, no, you got to have something, you know, short. And I remembered that Charlotte Mason always talks about, you can only narrate what you know. Mm. So... Of course, no and tell kind of calls to mind that whole show and tell. So that is short and snappy, and it's also, you know, appropriate and completely appropriate and short and snappy. Right. And it's very appropriate because later, actually, I ran across this quote in um, 
one of Charlotte Mason's volumes, I think it's volume six, where she says, it is our part to see that every child knows and can tell, whether by way of oral narrative or written essay. So it's very, um, very appropriate for uh, the title of a narration book. Now, I, I mentioned before on the introduction that at Cersei, here at the Mason Jar, we get so many questions about narration, and I'm sure that you've noticed. Um, it, and some people say you wrote a whole book about narration, but to me, um, it, that makes perfect sense. So, what does the book? What is like the scope of the book as far as narration goes? Well, I, I've started the book so that the first couple of chapters are just approaching the whole general topic of narration, like what it actually is, and how it functions in our normal everyday life and what that you know how that looks and how that lays a groundwork for using it as an educational method mm -hmm. because of the role it plays and so then I um I just go ahead and start at the beginning with what happens when you start narration with a child who's six years old okay all the way through to the final process of teaching them how to write you know fully fully developed essays Right, so you've already graduated, what, three children from your homeschool using mostly narration as, as their writing? Yes, yes, narration was definitely the foundation. Um, I don't think, I honestly think that you can, can teach writing pretty well with kind of a minimum of other resources. You do need some, and I, I suggest, make some suggestions in the book. Um, you can use curriculum. But there's also there's kind of an optimum point in the process when curriculum would be the most effective to add, and so I, I talk about that too. Right, when to add, when when to to keep it with narration. Uh, one of the things that you say in the book, and not in the book, but one of the because I haven't read the book yet, um, I, but I read what you said about the book, um, and one of the things that really struck me was that you said, and and this is what I think is so true is that it's a process, um, narration is a skill that takes years and years and years, um, really before you see the fruit of it. it, it would that be, maybe fruit's the wrong word there, but how, how do you feel about that? Well, I think that you see some. Right, right. But if you're thinking about, you know, the, the writing and spelling sort of thing, that doesn't happen early in the process. Um, you really have to understand that fluency in speaking and oral narration is sort of, we call we you even can call it oral composition. It mm -hmm. is laying the groundwork for being fluent in writing later. And so because it is later, it takes a little time for it to, um, you know, really to see, as you say, the fruit that you get with, when you're using narration. Well, I always feel like you can't judge whether narration is working in your family if you've only used it a little bit and then you give up and you quit and you say, well, narration doesn't work. That's not actually how the process of narration No, because works. consistency is the absolutely non-negotiable. You have to be consistent. Absolutely. It doesn't work. It doesn't work as an occasionally we narrate kind of thing, and it doesn't work... Um, like you said, if you give it up, it, if you don't see kind of immediate um, results. So while you, you may see some results, yes, that was great. My child did a narration today, and now he knows more about the book than he would have known. There's that result. But that isn't really the full-blown result of what years and years and years of, of, of oral and written narration gives to a child in the end. Right. Um, in fact, one of the things that I, I say that I tell people is that no individual narration 
is really that important. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody has an off day. They weren't paying attention. And you can't judge the process by how one particular narration is going. You really have to be consistent. And in fact, when uh, one of the things that I included in the book is it kind of a tool that you can use for evaluating but my standard is that most of your child's narrations will be like this not that all of them will right right um so you so so you have sample narrations in the book oh dozens and dozens of sample oh, narrations that's from awesome. every level every single level from beginning to end mm-hmm. I, I was very blessed i know a lot of people who use narration in their home school and they were very generous to um, share them and give me permission to include them in the book so there are just dozens of do you have bad narrations in the book or just only really good narrations i would say that i have typical narration typical typical um so which means that you know i I have typical narrations and so i think that that helps sometimes they are good and sometimes they're less less good um i i really i really think that they add a lot to what i'm saying in the book because it's you know just for example, when I was um, in the chapter on beginning narration with six-year-olds, I was able to collect three narrations from three different children who read, who listened to the same story. So you have wow. three kids' narrations from the same same story, and you can just see how differently, you know, they responded. Um, so those children, now that was, those were oral narrations. Were they oral narrations that the moms had uh, had written down? Yes, they wrote them down for me because I asked. Okay. Right, right. And that's right. a lot of fun. Now, I was never with so many kids. You know, I'm kind of the person that talks about narration from the large family point of view. And for that's one reason I'm all about consistency because in a large family, uh, everything is always, in, in all families, everything is always in a state of decay. But in a large family, it's decaying at a much more rapid rate <laughs> and, and to be consistent with some little thing um daily is is more important than having like these schedules and all this trying to figure you know i just that was my survival mechanism so i feel like that's what i bring to narration i bring um as far as helping the conversation i bring the the consistency factor just based right. on a large family but um but but for um, a child who, so for a mom who gets these narrations, like either orally, well, you know, I think what happens, and let's talk about some of the problems with narration before we get too deeply in here, is that the, the mom asks the child to narrate, and the child says just a little bit, a couple sentences maybe. Um, right. Well, what happens at that point? What, what, it, what, it, what should the mom do then at that point? When you're starting out, with, especially with new narrators who aren't really <clears throat> fluent yet, um, in a classroom, I mean, I, I read a lot of the articles, you know, that were written by the, the in the Parents Review and things like that about narration. And I mean, they were talking about a classroom situation, which isn't all that different from a large family situation. No, no. And and it was that they were like, okay, if one if a child manages to just you know give you one sentence. Don't enthusiastically say, okay, what else? Because that just could cause them to, you know, freeze up and be reluctant. Now they're talking about a classroom situation where the child might have been shy about speaking in front of everybody else. But the idea was, it's okay if that's all the child said, 
you can ask somebody else to say a little bit more. And if there isn't somebody else, as there isn't sometimes in a homeschool situation, then you, the mom parent, can be the class. You can say, okay, I think I can add something to that and, and say a little more. Or be like, you know. Okay, so that that's a very good point. So mom can actually narrate at that point a little bit of the story, and maybe not in a self-righteous, well, this is what you should have said. Way. Oh, no, no, right. No, no, no. They shouldn't repeat anything that the child said, but just to give a little more detail. And I actually add, would add the caution, don't be too good at it, because right. then it becomes a discouragement to them. Just give them a little more so they know, I could have said that, or, you know, it's, it's, it's more for the purpose of illustration, you know, for future reference than it is for correcting what they just said. That's not the point. And this is... If it's not actually wrong, it's acceptable. Right. Okay. But what if it is wrong? What if they say, um, um, you know, uh, George Washington crossed the Mississippi River instead of the, the... what, the Potomac or the Rappahannock or whatever, the Delaware. Right, right. In that case, it's perfectly fine when the narration is over. It's better not to interrupt it. Okay. Just, you know what? You said that he crossed the Mississippi River. Let's take a look at the map and see which river it was that he actually crossed and, you know, make the correction, not in a in a critical way, but for the purpose of actually correcting. To know, the, to actually know, to know. What's uh, far more likely is that the child won't give you the name of the river at all. Right. Yeah, he went right. across the river. <laughs> that right. sort of thing. Yeah, and at that point, is it okay? You could kind of throw the word Delaware around kind of nonchalantly without actually being a correct, being someone saying, um, what river was it that he crossed? As if right, it was right. a worksheet. No, yeah, you really don't want to ever, in narration, you don't want to ask for those kind of details because when you do that, you're actually undermining the purpose of narration. It's just not that important. If, if it's important that they, that they remember that it was the Delaware River, then just tell them afterwards. That right, was, that right. Was the Delaware. Or let's look at the map and see right. the name of the river that George Washington crossed. Um, I, Charlotte Mason talks about, you know, before a lesson, and this would be with kids who were old enough to do a little bit of reading, too, mm-hmm. but, you know, writing a few keywords like that. Right. Delaware river on the board. Or if you're homeschooling, you could just, you know, use a three by five card or a little whiteboard. And then when it's time to do the narration, they have some specific details to include in what they tell. Yes. Now, I, our local, we have a local um, a Charlotte Mason tutorial, Ingleside, and they are doing that. That is what they do before each reading. They have a few lines on the board of, of the things, some proper nouns that they're going to come to in the story. And then, and one of the things I do see with a large group of kids or, you know, five or six, seven, eight kids is that they do kind of know, they learn to narrate from each other in a way, because they have a little bit of, they have a little more motivation to do well on the narration because of the other kids. We're in a family at home. I think a child's, either a child's going to be one of those talkative children that will narrate forever or he you know it that he doesn't have that internal motivation from people around him to do a good job on his narration that you get with a little school situation right i actually included a chapter in the book about narration in the classroom and because i have no personal experience with it i interviewed uh, several teachers who do use Charlotte Mason's method in the classroom. And from talking to them, I came away with that same impression, Cindy, that narration in a classroom is actually much more dynamic. 
Mm-hmm. Than, yeah, in, and in, in a home. So it doesn't, it doesn't work. No. It, it benefits, but it is less. It's le- there's less enthusiasm for the whole. Well, the whole yes, program. there's le- there's less a struggle for, uh, and the less frustration with mom because even if the teacher is disappointed in one narration, there's somebody who's going to add to it. So um, you know, so maybe you're right. If mom can be a part of the, the without being you know too good at it, if she can she can narrate a little bit just as an example of how it goes or if you do have a large family and you can do this in morning time where you go around and say we're all going to narrate this a little bit of this story you start and you can you can add some and you can add some and um, right. I, I think when you when you if you have more than one child um, you can now I'm a, I'm I always homeschooled my kids and we always did oral and written narration so I'm not saying put your kids in school or anything I just it absolutely know- works it still works even if they don't like it that's what that's yes my personal kids are the poster children for narration works even when they don't like it yeah Uh, i i think that some young moms visualize that if they talk to our children they would say things like oh i just love narration it was just such a wonderful part of my life (laughs) And, and that might not be the case it's not it's not not the case for my kids but it doesn't matter they actually they actually, um, as they when they left my homeschool, you know, they fought me tooth and nail about it sometimes. But when they left my homeschool and they went on to college, it didn't take them very long to see how narration had prepared them for functioning in college and even in like a work environment where they had to communicate orally with other people. Right, exactly. This is so huge that when you see it, even if the child doesn't even know it's taking place, when you see how a child who's grown up narrating communicates and is able to um, write, the, the writing is the lost art in, in our in our in our public school system because nobody's there's not a lot of writing going on so when a child gets to college and they can't take the thoughts they're thinking and communicate them orally or put them down on paper um, that's a huge obstacle that that really is almost insurmountable at that point right it's it's just it's so hard and that's why so many colleges you know they're offering remedial classes you know in, in writing and grammar because kids don't have what are actually very basic communication skills. And narration just answers that purpose. Um, in, in part of my research for this book, I ran across an article, I think it was in Forbes magazine, that said it, it was a list of the things that employees were looking for when they were hiring. And of the top, the top four or five were essentially communication-based, oral communication-based. It was like narration prepares you to be the very best in any job that you're going to go out there and do because you're going to have these skills that are very highly valued right exactly and and it's these are skills that um are going to be um uh, somebody at our school one of our new teachers has has talked about 21st century skills that people need um and and when we think about those we think about um um you know technology technological skills but just being you technic it's it really to me goes back to the liberal arts or the um the servile arts a technological skill is a servile art you have to have something inside of you to put into to that servile art so you have to have knowledge in order to benefit from having 
you know, this, this ability to, to be technological. And that's something that people keep overlooking um, when they talk about the future, that it's fine to have all these uh, technological skills, but if you don't have something to put input into those, that technology. What are you actually going to do with them, right? Right, right. You, there, you can't skip over that stage. And I feel like a Charlotte Mason education is preparing people for the future because it's preparing them to be able to communicate, um, which is rapidly becoming um, a lost art, especially on a, a level beyond um, social communication. Right, right. So my, um, my recommendation is don't worry about whether your kids like it or not. Just like, <laughs> make them do it anyway. <laughs> All right. That's a fantastic recommendation. I mean, that's one that's going to probably goes across the board to many, many things. I, people, my kids, um, Shakespeare was not, my, my student now loves Shakespeare. As much as I love Shakespeare, nobody ever came to me and said, I, I had some people thank me for teaching them Shakespeare, but it was almost entirely utilitarian um, <laughs> because their college professors enjoyed that they, they knew that um, and helped them get an A. But, um, but, but yeah, so it did, but it didn't matter. They still benefited. It was still something that um, helped them in life. Okay, so so... So we have so we have a child, we have a six-year-old, and they're going to have an oral narration. And then how does it look from there? Um, where do we go from there? Well, I have kind of mapped out um, like four stages of narration, roughly. So that if you do start with a child who's six-year-old, you can devote the first three years to nothing but oral narration. Like mm-hmm. six to, ages six to nine or so. Right. They, they could do just oral narration. And by the time, if you have a child, a nine or maybe a 10-year-old who's been narrating since they were six, they are extremely fluent. Mm-hmm. They, can, they can express themselves very, very well. And if they could write as what they can say, they would be, you know, miles and miles ahead of their peers, but they can't yet. Right. So, so the second stage that starts about that time right around nine or 10 in fourth grade is written narration. And so you start, and again, it takes three, maybe four years for some kids to build full fluency in written narration, which is not composition. Right. That's not composition. Okay. This is not composition. This is narration. It's just written narration, Mm -hmm. which is basically building your fluency and being able to say in paper the same thing you would say out loud if you're narrating, Mm -hmm. like to just, grow your skill of putting those thoughts on paper or typing if you mm-hmm. want to type that's okay too but um <clears throat> so that's the second stage and then the third stage is is kind of a really a transition stage because so much depends on the individual child some kids are more natural writers and they just really they reach fluency and they're ready to move into composition by the time they hit 12 say whereas other kids actually need another year or two Mm-hmm. So for me, the third stage is a transition between just plain written narration and beginning composition. Like, okay, just beginning to not just um, not just narrate what you're saying, but actually beginning to start thinking about writing as a craft. Because up till then, you're just doing it as a as a skill. Mm-hmm. You grow your skill of writing. That third stage is overlapping between finishing that that stage and getting fully fluent in writing and beginning to think about narration or excuse me about writing as a craft and then the final 
stage, which is just, it, 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 it's the last three years of high school, is basically just practicing that craft and polishing those skills. Right, right. Um, now, you say something in one of, you have an article up, on, not to get controversial here, but you have an article up, which, um, I, I mean, I, I have conversations with people all the time where this comes up, um, because, you know, we talk, I talk a lot about writing and, and, and conversations with other parents and other teachers, and the five-paragraph essay comes up all the time, and if you say anything negative about that, everybody just falls apart. The conversation almost comes to an end because um, because it is the hallmark of American uh, writing, teaching of writing, <laughs> which should tell us something. Well, um, see, but, the question but, is, sh but should it be? Yes, that should is that, a question. Yeah, so what that, is, what's wrong with the five-paragraph essay? <laughs> well, essentially, nothing. Okay, there's, a, there's really nothing wrong with five-paragraph essay. And in fact, that's the first thing, even in know and tell, that I'm going to suggest that you, that you help your children do. However, what's wrong with it is that it has been, in a sense, it's, it's, they've taken it from being just a simple five-paragraph essay with a beginning, a middle, and an end, you know, right. and turned it into like this Frankenstein monstrosity where every single sentence is pres prescribed. Like the first sentence does this, the second sentence does this, and your your first paragraph must end with a sentence that makes this trans kind of, you know a transition to the next one, so that there's no continuity or flowing of thought. You're you've taking you you know you're creating these sentences and building your fi your five paragraph essay, and they start this process way too soon. Right, right. I agree. Way too that. soon. Like when there's kids are still in elementary school, they start this. Mm -hmm. my, my personal experience has been that you can explain the idea of a five-paragraph essay to a fluent narrator who's about 15, 16 mm -hmm. years old, and they can write one, like now. I, I agree. I totally agree. That's so, exactly right. So, I, it is, so yes, you, you know, I'm going to talk about writing a five-paragraph essay, but I have tried to scale it back so people understand that this is not the pinnacle of, you know, writing ability. It's just a simple way that you organize your thoughts, and there's a good reason for it. Um, you know, a five-paragraph essay, you have a, an introductory and a conclusion, and you have three points you just middle. don't want to run over the idea that this is a, a, a living you, you want to write something that's living and it's, compelling and not just um right that, it's that, just a way of organizing the thoughts that, that you have yeah and, i love um, the idea to me all good writing falls naturally into an outline um you can take a piece of writing that that is done well and and you can fit it, not counting maybe a stream of consciousness writing but you you can take it and drop it into an outline of some sort um, because right, it makes right. sense and it flows and it has it has a beginning a middle and an end quite naturally so to me rather than going at it from the five paragraph essay which I, I'm like you I think you should teach it I just think you should teach it in a very short um Right, let it be casual. Run through. Yes, it should not be the essence of what writing is. The the it, it is a framework 
it is not the thing. The thing is the, are the words that you place in the framework, um, not, not the framework itself. But I feel like that gets lost in the way writing is taught. Yeah, and kids don't want to write. I mean, who wants to write that after, you know, after you, if you know it's a framework, then you can use it. But if you don't know that, if that's the sum total of everything you know about writing, then you would be bored to death and you would think writing was foolish. Why would you do it? it it's it's innate. Right, because it's, it's very artificial, like, you know. Right, right. Of, of writing. See, the thing is that kids who are, of, who are 15, say, and are very fluent um, narrators, and they can write, and they've already started by that point learning, how, you know, how to think about writing as a craft. I mean, they want to know how to write better, usually. Yes, they, they, they do. They there is that. Right. They want some hints about how to organize their thoughts and things like that. So just a f brief explanation. And I included this in Know and Tell. I mean, I have a few short pieces that are actually addressed to the student to, to, to give them a kind of jumpstart them into some of these things. See, it's not a complete writing program. That's not my, right. that wasn't my goal. Okay. Just, but just, it, is, um, it, is a, it is a writing framework to, that you can plug in and you can take this and say, this is, you know, it, it gives you a, a clear, a clear path to how you get from oral narration to um, writing um, in, in high school, I guess you could. Uh, right. Right. Well, I found with my kids, I always tell the story, but um, one of my sons, I always ran them through like a format writing before they graduated from high school and they did like a, a, a final research paper. But one of my sons graduated a year early and I didn't get a chance to do that. And he got to college and I totally forgot about it. And then he was in English. He was doing really well. And I said to him one day, oh my goodness, um, how did you do with the, the MLA style stuff? I, I didn't teach any of that. He goes, oh. He goes, that just, what, that took me like two, a minute, two hours, and I got it. You know, it wasn't, it was, he could, but what you can't get is the ability to flow and write. If he had not had the ability to actually take what he was wanting to say and put it on the paper, he could not have overcome that in two hours. Right, exactly. That, that, that's just it. My recommendation for most if, if you're if you have the confidence to go ahead and use narration as the foundation for writing is to go ahead and acquire some kind of writing handbook you know mm -hmm. there's a there's a there's a few good ones out there and my suggestion is to get one get an older one because because they market them as college textbooks they can be terribly expensive but there's no reason yeah. to get the most up-to-date right. one writing good writing uh advice is very repetitive so you don't need a lot of books because they're all going to say the same thing okay so one or pick, two pick one pick one, one or pick two, two really good resources that you maybe read more than once during your high school years or read it through once and then just dip into it you know um when when you have a need or you want some insight into something so so that's good so let's back up a little I want to back up a little bit because I get another a lot of questions about other parts of writing um, so you have an oral a person who orally narrates and there are some other things you can do I don't know do you talk in your book about um, copy work or dictation not at all because it, the, the the book is about narration and even though I, I cannot talk about narration without talking about Charlotte Mason. I'm not trying to present a comprehensive Charlotte Mason language arts. Okay. I, no so concept. your book is, and I think this is, 
I, I really think from all the questions we get, this is going to be such a great resource. I, I feel like um, it's going to answer so many questions people have because well, that's what I hope. <laughs> yeah, because um, we have it's just it's just very frustrating. So what what would a mom do? Say say she gets a narration, a written narration from an 11, 12 year old. And there's a lot of misspelled words, or let's say there's five misspelled words in the narration. Um, what what should she do about that? Well, at that age, I would honestly say probably nothing. Mm-hmm. If she's use, if she's if she's teaching spelling in some other context. Um, I might address, you know, the, the, whatever. If there's some particular, you can see there's some particular spelling issues. Um, then I might address that in another context. Pay, pay attention to what, where the, the right, okay. right. I mean, if they're continually misspelling, you know, the T-I-O-N ending or something like that, right. I, I might address that rule elsewhere and make sure that they are, you know, thinking about it. But I'll tell you, here's, here's my suggestion for helping your, like at that age, 11 and 12, if you've been doing, you started at nine or 10, you've been doing written narrations for a while. And the communication on paper, it needs to, it has to have a certain form in order to you know be legible by other people right <laughs> you know, there's spelling there's punctuation there's capitalization and i don't i don't think that narration is the time to teach those things but if you want to encourage your kids to write more correctly kind of incrementally little by little my suggestion is sometime within the first year at least you can introduce two rules start every sentence with a capital letter end every sentence with a period or another punctuation mark. But, Mm -hmm. you know, so at least that's, those are really basic mechanical, mechanical rules. Nothing about, you know, better writing or anything like that. Right. Just just mechanical rules. And then as your kids get older and they, they become more fluent, you know, they're not just on one narration of the week, they're doing four or five written narrations a week. Uh, you can introduce other mechanical rules, preferably the ones that address your personal students' problems. There's no need to, you know, just come up with a big long list of rules and, and give them that. But if, you, like I said, if your student is forever misspelling, you know, T-I-O-N as S-H-U-N, shun, mm-hmm. um, make a rule saying the T-I-O-N, the shun word ending is spelled T-I-O-N. Just make that a rule. And then whatever your rules are, and they, they should be few only a few, before your child gives you their narration, ask them to check. Is every sentence okay. was? Does every sentence end with a period? Did you remember the, to spell shun correctly at the end of any words? Um, and let them check, give you the paper, and then that's the end. Because until you reach the stage where you start the editing, and that's part of stage three when you start addressing writing as a craft. Um, I said, I said stage three is to have actually numbered them. I have not. Okay. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> But um, it's until you start that where you're, you know, purposefully editing papers, that'll be the time to start making spelling corrections in their own, you know, in their work. There is a time to start that. But for most kids, 12 would be the absolute earliest I would start. And for some kids, it's probably going to need to wait another year or so. Right, right. Well, that that actually helps me with my student that I'm working with now because um, I want to hold him responsible for what he already knows. And basically, he knows, you know, four four little rules about a sentence, you know, uh, the sentence. So, but to 
to ask him to edit it first. That's a great idea. Right, right, right. And not to make corrections himself. Right. Let him be responsible for you know, looking at his own work. Right. And I think over time that would just help kids who are doing written narrations to build the habit of writing more correctly and sort of self-editing as they go. Did you ever have a student who was really, really good at writing, but they did it super fast and weren't very um, careful or neat? Um, well, most of my kids did, did their um, their written narrations typing. They typed typing, typing. Once they could, once they could type, I let them type if they okay. wanted. My all my three older kids did their written narrations once they could type. They chose to type. Right, right. We and, didn't really have the ability to type when my kids were little, when my, not even little, but until we had a computer where my oldest was maybe 15 or 16. So we weren't mm -hmm. in that habit of using the computer. Right. My youngest child has the option of typing and she still chooses to write sometimes. Right. Yeah, I feel like event. You know, it's gonna he, once he does start typing. The student I have now, um, he his writing is, he really writes well. I mean, it, amazingly well. Um, so I'm gonna he's. But now we're constant. You know, I. But I do feel like there there is some benefit to him putting his handwriting his what's in his head in his hand, um, on there the paper. Definitely, there definitely is. There's absolutely nothing wrong with handwriting. You know, all the way through if that works for the child. Um, a lot of kids uh, find it easier to write at greater length when when they're typing. That's true. You get more out of them when they're not bogged down by their own. I mean, I know the other day he wrote a real long narration. It was a page and a half uh, of college-old paper, and he's 11. And wow, that's, he was, that's exceptional. I wouldn't call that the average at all. No, no, no. And he, he didn't start out like this is the thing. Um, he, you know, he, I've, he, he's really come along he's a child who's taken to narration very well but um he, he you know he, when he was done it was kind of a little bit sloppy but his hand was hurting and he was like oh my sending my hand just feels terrible and I had not told him he had to write that much but I had said give me a little bit longer narration today um, he has a tendency to um, spread the words out really big on the page so it looks like <laughs> it's longer <laughs> But this day he didn't do that, but then his hand was hurting. So it, it was quite an exercise, uh, but his narration was wonderful. But it, it you know, we we're, we're trying to decide how much of that, because uh, I know if he was typing, it would be nice. It would look much neater, um, but um, his his words are excellent. His vocabulary is- Right, right. It, 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 typing or writing, either one is okay. And, and when it comes to memory, probably handwriting is is more effective that's not the whole purpose of narration but it, it yeah. actually it actually does probably assist with memory to write it by hand that way now are there any other main topics in narration you want to mention here that we haven't said anything about oh um, I, I don't know i thought we've touched at least a little bit on on pretty much the whole process haven't we yeah, I think and one thing you said um, in your blog post, you said, Charlotte Mason said that education is the science of relations. And I am convinced that narration is a relationship building exercise. I want to show you how it works so that you can realize its full potential. Um, one of the things I always like to say is 
there's a lot of things that we we might have to we might be able to do or we might not be able to do in our homes like we might not be able to do sloyd or we might not be able to do some of these others you know uh shape note singing and some of these other charlotte mason things but you really really can't be a charlotte mason homeschool without narration uh, no i think it's absolutely key and she actually herself um, as the years went on, came to see how vital narration was. Like it really was not uh, optional. Yeah, I mean, her whole, her whole, um, the whole science of relations, children are born persons, how we, how we learn as human beings, um, and our, as you like to say, mind to mind, it all comes out in narration. Exactly, exactly. And the way the narration works in real life. I mean, in a sense, we're narrating to each other now. You know, mm -hmm. narration is a type of conversation. It's what you do every day. It's just a natural part of life. And it's a relationship building exercise in that context as well. I just think that's wonderful. I think if we think of it as narration, a relationship building exercise, um, it, it could actually transform you know our priorities about it because um it just it just so in that quick little thing that you came up with it just really captures why um and we we kind of had to learn that through i mean i know i i didn't understand it i was very faithful with narration kind of accidentally and i and out of desperation to actually do something you know consistently in my home um, but in the end, it turned out to be, you know, a good, a good place to fall. It, and I could see that afterwards. But now you and I and some of the older moms can look back and tell the younger moms, yeah, this is where, this is where you want to, this is the hill you want to live and die on. Exactly, exactly. I had something happen, and I tell this story in my book, when my oldest child was six years old and only we'd only been doing formal schooling for a couple of months because it was around Thanksgiving time. And I had read him a book about the pilgrims in the first Thanksgiving. It was Al Alice Dalglish's uh, story of the pilgrims or mm -hmm. story of the first Thanksgiving. And I, I read that to him across maybe the course of a week and he had narrated it. And I was talking on the phone one day to a friend who was homeschooling her son, who was a year older than mine and using just a boxed pre, you know, pre-made curriculum. And as a second grader, his assignment had been to write two sentences about first Thanksgiving. And she was telling me that she was a little disappointed in what he had written because he had written, uh, the pilgrims are nice, the Indians are nice. That was his two sentences. I mean, he was seven. Yeah. It's not that easy to write stuff down when he was seven. So, um, so I, after talking to her, I went back to my son and I said, tell me about the first Thanksgiving. I didn't say anything else. We had read that book and he had narrated it and he started telling me the story. And if I had written it down, which I did not, it would have taken a page and a half to, to write everything that he said. And it was very thorough, very full of detail. And I thought, if that's the difference that narration makes at this level, you know, between being able to say all of that and being able to squeeze out the pilgrims are nice, the Indians are nice on paper, which incidentally he couldn't have done. Yeah. <laughs> he couldn't have done that. But um, I thought, I want to see 
what will happen if we take it all the way to the end? And so when my oldest child was six, I just committed to seeing what would happen. I wanted to see the process all the way through, which I have now done. Yeah. Now, Karen, we are going to, I have so many more questions I want to ask you, but we, we had technical difficulties and now um, our time is up. Uh, we have other things that we have to get to. So um, um, I had a few more things to ask you, but um, we are going to say goodbye for now. And um, hopefully we will have you back on the show because I want to hear what your next book is going to be. <laughs> now well, that you, you, and I already have an idea. Oh, what, can you tell us? <laughs> nope, not ready to talk about it yet. <laughs> okay. Oh, wow. This is so mysterious. All right. Well, when you are ready, let me know. And we, okay. uh, so we well, I can really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for having yes. me on the show. Oh, and thank you so much for coming. And um, um, well, uh, we could just go on forever, but I really, really true. appreciate you. I really appreciate you coming to us all the way from Poland. <laughs> oh, I'm really glad. So it's good to talk to you, and I'll talk to you again soon.